What's going on everyone, it's Emiliano here and in this episode of the podcast I have the pleasure to interview psychologist and author of Hashtag Life, Jim Brown. During our conversation, you will be able to listen to Jim and I talk about how fulfillment comes from creating, about virtuousness and about neural activity and how that relates to our reality and to how we perceive the world. So I hope you enjoy, you receive value, and that you learn something useful. First of all, I would like you to present yourself and tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Jim Brown, for anyone that doesn't know me. I am a lecturer turned writer uh, and do a bit of public speaking and consultancy as well. Um, I generally lecture in things to do with coaching and leadership, those sorts of things. Uh, and then uh, philosophy and psychology have kind of become a bit of a, a hobby that I've then turned into more of an academic pursuit. So my PhD <clears throat> that I'm currently studying is in philosophy and psychology combined. Awesome. And well, um, could, could you talk a little bit about your book and how is this process of coming up with the idea of writing it, but also the content in it? Yeah, it was... Um, It was a tricky one. Um, I, I came up with the idea because I had seen through my own reading and through my own academic journey, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd seen quite a lot of similarities with different pieces of material. So uh, the ancient philosophers would be saying this, and then I'd also be seeing similarities in the psychological literature. So it, it seemed to be obvious to me that someone needs to start writing about the two of them combined because at the moment people aren't really they're they're in one discipline or they're in another so it was fairly logical for me to do that and then uh, a lifetime of watching movies and watching too much tv and whatever else made me then connect up i guess you might then refer to the pop culture references to try and explain some of the really complex elements of philosophy and psychology in a way that people might um, find a little bit easier to, to absorb. Cool. And well, uh, now I would like to get deeper into the book and specifically, in, specifically into three concepts, because after two weeks of having read the book, um, three, three things stand out to me. And the first one is, to order disorder and actually that's what I think the book is about because I could relate all the concepts in the book to that specific part to order disorder and well I mean I could explain it here but I would like the author to explain the concepts in the book so could you talk a little bit about this concept of order and disorder and yeah. also how was the perspective on this by ancient philosophers and and current psychologists yeah so I actually designed the book that way. So it was the, the whole premise of the book from the introduction onwards is based around this concept of trying to bring some degree of order to disorder, but also appreciating that we have to have disorder in order to be able to grow, live, um, uh, self-actualize and whatever else. Um, so yeah, it was, it's predicated primarily on that concept. So for people that are less familiar Um, the, the yin and yang symbol that people are often uh, familiar with but don't necessarily understand the, the precepts behind it. So it's uh, yin and yang represent 
order and chaos, chaos and order, um, the known, the unknown, darkness, lights, they're the kind of opposites that, in, generally speaking, people see opposites as being things that fight with each other, whereas in ancient uh, Chinese philosophy or Taoism, they are complementary opposites that work with each other. So um, the idea behind the book was to try to get people to see that you have to actually embrace chaos rather than be consumed by it. You have to select just the right amount of chaos to do battle with in order to progress yourself in whatever avenue it is that, that you choose to pursue. Um, and from a psychological point of view, uh, anyone that's familiar with the work of um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's the uh, Hungarian, if I remember correctly, Hungarian uh, psychologist who talks about flow and flow states. It's a very similar concept in terms of we obtain flow, if you were to kind of do a, a, do a graph, we obtain flow at this sort of like optimal point or what you might refer to as an optimal challenge point. And that's essentially finding just the right balance between just the right amount of chaos rather than diving straight into the abyss of chaos. It's selecting just the right amount of chaos in whatever it is that you're doing. And that's how we get optimal psychological function. And that's the first way, right, to um, well, achieve happiness and to well, live a fulfilling life. And Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I refer it to it that way. So rather than happiness, I think happiness is a, is a, is a loose term, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I choose fulfillment instead. Because, and, and then ultimately fulfillment is about you, you have to have the opportunity to convert some chaos into order without that opportunity you don't have the opportunity for fulfillment fulfillment is the process of conversion rather than the outcome of it being converted if, if that makes sense you have yeah, to have you have to have possibility in order to have any opportunity for fulfillment because if you had if life was perfect and everything was exactly as we <laughs> wanted it what would we do then how would we yeah. obtain so it's, it's the process process of converting in, in my opinion from what i've read and what i've studied the process of conversion is more important than the having yes and i liked what you said about the icon and the, and the outcome because i have just had an interview with author brent mansour of black sheep and oh, right. yeah that's what we i think that we talked about about um focusing on what you actually do and not the outcome because you do not control that and well, second, secondly, I would like to talk about creativity and passion because my story with this concept is interesting in my opinion because the weekend that I read uh, this in your book, I was in a seminar and the day before in the seminar, they mentioned many things about um, creating the life that you want and being fulfilled with it, but also living with purpose, living with deliberate intention. Um, with what makes you passionate. And so then I was a bit confused in that day, but after reading your chapter of the book, I could finally understand what they were talking about. And well, could you talk a little bit about this concept and also how do you leave it? I am interested in knowing about that. Uh, sorry, what was that last point? Yeah, how do you leave um, creativity and passion? in your personal life um 
Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. Um, so creativity, one of the things I talk about is how it's almost a, an inbuilt human concept. It's an inbuilt human drive. I'm not suggesting that everyone is very creative, but I think that there's an innate sense of or innate need for us to be creative in some way, shape or form. And when I say creative, I don't mean that everyone has to go and paint a picture or write some music or whatever else it might be. For me, it's bringing something something into existence that didn't exist before you did whatever it was that you were doing. Um, I think if you if you think back to when you're a small child and you you go to school and um, the, the paintings that you've or the pictures that you've painted that you bring home and show your parents with such pride and it gets put on the on the fridge or wherever else it is the, the pride that you have I don't think is necessarily completely down to the praise that you get off the back of this piece of artwork that you've just done it it's you you have manifested your brain your mind your being into something into an abstract thing that didn't exist until you made it and i think for me that's the overarching message of being creative it's creating something that didn't exist prior um and that could be a business it could be uh, a, a spice rack that you make and with carpentry or picture whatever else it might be but it's just something um and for me i've got quite a few creative outlets so i'm, I'm quite lucky in that respect in that i like to uh, draw so i do quite a bit of artwork uh, i'm a bit of a musician as well obviously i write so i have lots of opportunities to to kind of manifest my creativity in some way shape or form but it's not to say that I expect that from anyone else and I'm not suggesting in the book either that again everyone needs to be Picasso it's just about keeping hold of that creative endeavor that means that you go out into the world and try to create something that didn't exist before yeah and then how do you define passion hmm it's a very good question how would I define uh passion I think It might be something to do with maybe a combination of a couple of chapters in there. So one creativity and two mindfulness. I think yeah. if you can find that thing that you that you can immerse yourself in where it's whatever it's whatever it does, whatever uh, thing it is that you're engaging in that makes time disappear where you, you look back at your watch again and it's two hours later and, you, and it feels like it's been yeah. half an hour. I think they're the topics that you are probably passionate about. Um, and generally speaking, they tend to be more creative endeavors, creative or right brain soothing type activities. Passion, I think, is just about following those activities with a, a fervor, with a with a desire to see them through. And I think importantly for me, it's about personal mastery. So I think if you're really passionate about something, you want to do it for you. So we'd refer to that in, psycho in the psychological literature as having an in intrinsic motivation for something rather than extrinsic motivation. So an extrinsic motivation is because someone's going to pat you on the back or give you a medal or a trophy or whatever. I think if you're really passionate about something, you do it because you want to be better at it for you and for no one else. If things come along with that, so let's say your business or whatever else it might be, great. So if you go to the 
where I've talked about Ikigai, the, the Japanese concentric yeah. circle um, diagram. If you can find your Ikigai, that central, uh, the, the interconnecting section of the Venn diagram, if you can find that, great. Not many people can find that, but if you can at least follow something that you're passionate about, you'll get all of the psychological benefits that you're after and enjoy yourself along the way at least. Yes, yeah. and it is also about what you were talking about earlier, right? About um, flowing or being in a flow state because when you're yeah. passionate about something, you just keep moving and keep going and you enjoy what you're doing. And well, my last uh, takeaway, my last biggest takeaway was virtue and being virtuous. And um, this section in your book, I could relate, uh, I was able to relate it to the seven habits of highly effective people, because in order to um, well keep thriving uh, in a social way, you need to leave good values, right? Um, to make others uh, thrive too. And so that you can keep living your passion and creating and well, creating order in disorder. And so could you talk about uh, virtue in a psychological and also um, in a uh, philosophical way? Yeah, um, I feel like virtue as a, as a concept is almost a little lost in, in the modern age. Um, and it's a delicate situation because you've kind of got um, from a sociological perspective or political perspective, you've got Western individualism and Eastern collectivism. And I think often some of the virtue based uh, literature that I've mentioned in the book is quite Eastern oriented. So it's quite collectivist, Eastern oriented. But I think it's something that, that is is often a little lost. Um, the if you take Confucianism for example, so you look at all of the works of, of Confucius, it was about um, it was about being virtuous. It was about the the pursuit of benevolence and some of the terms that again aren't, aren't used all that much, and it, it makes you think about your actions in a way that it breeds kind of conscientiousness and um, you start you start questioning what it is you're doing and what, what are the motives behind what you're doing. Um, and I think that that internal questioning is the sort of thing that helps to steer you on a path of, of I don't want to say righteousness, it's not the wrong word. Again, virtu virtuousness is the right word, but I think it's that internal, it's that internal voice that asks you, should I really do this? Should I really be doing that? Should I really talk to that person that way? Uh, should I really respond this way? What do my responses and my actions say about me? So it's that kind of internal, um, internal voice, that internal questioning. And I think that's, that's a little lost. Um, one of the things I also talk about earlier in, in the book is how sometimes that internal questioning can, be, can become quite negative. So at the same time, you need to balance this virtue, this pursuit of benevolence and virtuousness with also um, what based questions rather than why based questions. So, uh, give yourself actionable things that you can change rather than dwelling on, oh, I'm a terrible person. Why, why am I such a bad person? As opposed to what can I do to be a better person? The, the change of language is um, from a psychological perspective, the change of language is really important. It changes the complete dynamic of the situation. So um, 
yeah, I think the, the the Eastern philosophy for me, anyone listening, they're the the pieces of literature that really kind of push this this virtue based culture that I think is is still still needed in in today's world. Yes, it is, and in the book you mentioned a lot, uh, Marcus Aurelius, and also in his book in Meditations, he talks about um, well being a good person, right? Because you're gonna die, and that's another thing you mentioned. You mentioned in your book that I loved. In well, in the end, you were saying that, like all the the content of the book was intended to live a better life uh, from a modern perspective. But the main point, or that's the way I um, I got it, is that you're gonna die, and so how do you want to live while you can actually live? Yeah, um, there's, a, I think, a couple of things. Uh, so Marcus Aurelius, there's some similarities there also with the Japanese philosophy of, of the samurai culture. So they always had this idea of always keep death in mind. And it wasn't a, a, a dark and twisted way of, of living. It was about saying, well, look, all right, well, we, are, we are going to die. So how are we going to live? Just as you, as you very, very nicely put it, but also how would you want to leave this world? How would you want to be remembered? And it's not to create some kind of legacy of, oh my God, Jim Brown or Emiliano was, was such a, an amazing person, but it's just, how do you want to carry yourself? You know, how, how do you want to live? How do you want to um, navigate your way through this world? You can do it honorably and you can do it well, or you can... Uh, which which also means overcoming obstacles and learning from mistakes. You know, you can't be perfect. Uh, or you can just kind of float your way through life with no goal, no direction, um, never really questioning if you're if you're a nice person, all those sorts of things. So, um, so yeah, uh, I think there's some, some quite strong similarities between Marcus Aurelius and, again, the, the Eastern philosophy. Yes, there are. And, well, now I would like to ask you, what do you think is the most powerful lesson in the book or what would you like every reader to get from the book? Um, I guess so the, way I, the way I wrote it and, and forgive me, I don't mean to insult anyone else or um, be derogatory to, to anyone in any way, shape or form, but I think a lot of books out there are, are quite um, prescriptive in terms of the way that they, the way that they're written, and then the way that they kind of preach to the reader as to um, follow these ten steps and everything will be great. Um, I didn't want to write a book like that because I don't think it's that simple, and I've never thought it was that simple. And to be honest, the literature wouldn't suggest it's that simple either. Um, it's you can't find quick fixes to make life that much better. So I tried to say, rather than do these things and everything will be amazing, it was, well, look, the, this is what the literature is saying. This is what all of these great people are saying. And it might take a long time and it might take a lot of you revisiting the book to, to find things that then really speak to you. But um, it's a long process. Keep chipping away at it. Um, I suppose the quickest fix out of all of them and maybe the most powerful message is, if in doubt, convert a little bit of chaos to order and your world will seem that much better than it did before. I like those messages. 
<laughs> and well, um, now I would like to well, yeah, I would like to know how was the process of um, publishing your book on Amazon independently. Uh, an absolute nightmare. Um, <laughs> and that, again, that's nothing against Amazon here. That's it's purely my naivety. So the the idea of writing a book is one thing. The idea of being a publicist is very, very different. So all of the things to do with marketing, uh, Amazon's algorithms and all these sorts of things, the process of having a book edited, uh, proofread, um, yeah, it's, it's such a long process. And if I'm honest, there's no one out there really to, or, or no one source of information to make it all easier, unless you pay inordinate sums of money for people to do it on your behalf, or if you're lucky enough to get a traditional publishing contract. So yeah, I won't lie to you. It was a very, very difficult, stressful process. Uh, for all those people out there that think they'd like to write a book, I, I'm really behind that, but I'd also say to them, be careful what you sign up for, um, because it's, it's, a, it's a difficult process. But at the same time, extremely rewarding uh, to, to be able to put my, my own book on a bookshelf along with some multiple other authors that I aspire to, to, to write as well as is probably flatters me, but it's a great, it's a great feeling. So I, I can't complain too much, but yes, it's very, very difficult process, very, very long and arduous process. And well, I guess it was something you were passionate about, right? Um, creating a book. Yeah, and it's also, it's I'm passionate about making a life for myself where I get to do something that I, I enjoy. Uh, I appreciate it's going to be a very long road, so I try to take my own advice as much as possible. I know it's going to be a long road for me, but I've nearly finished writing my second book, so I've, I've nearly finished the first draft of my second book, uh, which will actually be part of a three-book series. Um, so I've, I've kind of already, I've got a lot of other plans in, in motion at the moment. So it, it can't be that bad of a process or else I wouldn't be signing up to do it again. So I must be passionate about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and now that you mentioned your second book, uh, could you talk a little bit about that or is it like secret? Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I mean, by all means, if, if someone wants to steal the idea that uh, if they can turn around the book faster than I can, then, then fair play to them. Um, no, it's... Uh, the, the whole concept of this series is about is what Nassim Taleb might refer to as epistemic arrogance. So I'm talking about, and it's one of the things I wrote about in, in the first book there, about thinking we know more than we do and how that is bad for us as individuals, bad for society, bad for uh, political environments, common discourse. Um, so and it also forms part of my PhD as well. So from a, from a credibility perspective, hopefully it means that I can speak about it with, um, I guess, a, a degree of, I don't want to say authority, but a degree of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the core concept of the three books. OK, yeah. And well, um, now I would like to get deeper into something you said earlier during our conversation. And you said that uh, from a psychological uh, perspective, um, and this is how I got it. What you say to yourself is what you create into reality. 
Um, yeah, yeah, to some degree. So I, I guess you're talking about that internal voice and then yeah. how that manifests yeah, yeah. in reality. Yeah, I, yeah, there, there is definitely some truth to that. I mean, you, if you look at people like Tony Robbins, for example, you know, he's a massive advocate of the story we tell ourselves is is what we become, and you could almost argue it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation in terms of what comes first. You know, how do, how do how does someone grow the confidence to orchestrate the the internal conversation that they want to manifest in the world um or do you do something first that then gives you a bit of confidence to then be able to so are they sort of um situations that help one another i'm, I'm not sure what the answer is to to be honest i think personally i've, I've experienced both where uh, a mental shift has been met with a much better outlook on life so i think my own your own personal perspective is extremely powerful but i think we also gain confidence and we gain we gain a sense of growth and opportunity from some of the things that we do in life and i think sometimes you actually have to have done something first in order to realize and look back at it and say oh actually i am capable of doing that um I, people often talk nowadays about um imposter syndrome and and, and these sorts of concepts um and I think a lot of the time that's because people don't look at what they have already achieved in life. Um, they, they just see negatively the road ahead rather than looking back at their, the road before them and think, well, look at all of the times that I questioned myself and I was still able to come through it. I was still able to achieve. I think so. So for me, it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of recognising what you have achieved, but then also changing your perspective on and changing that internal conversation as to what you want to be i think it's a bit of both and is that too the way that it works in our brain um analyzing it uh with psychology yeah i mean you, you definitely can you could by changing that by changing that vocabulary and that vernacular that you use to speak to yourself yes definitely a change of perspective can have significant changes so things like um, neurotransmitter activity in the brain if we talk about it from a, a neuroscientific point of view serotonin levels cortisol levels um, dopamine levels can be changed just by a change of perspective um, so yeah i think you, you're definitely right there but again i think it's i think it's a combination of the internal mechanisms, our perspective onto the world and genuinely looking at what we've already achieved. Uh, serotonin, for example, serotonin tracks status. So if you perceive your status to be lower than what it really is, you'll have a serotonin, you'll have a, a, sub, a, a subsequent serotonin drop. And serotonin is essentially kind of the, the a bit of a happiness chemical. So just by a change of perspective, you can elevate or, or or lower your um your happiness purely through perspective so yes it would, it would definitely have an impact okay and well now i'm curious have you read um this book awaken the giant within by tony robbins do you know what it's i feel bad because i haven't um but it is actually on a so for for christmases and birthdays for the last however many years um, people only ever buy me books, so I, I create a reading list, and then people can just buy off of the reading list, and it's on, and it's on my reading list. So, ask me that question again in in two three months, and I'll be able to say yes. 
Okay, well, but I mean, I think we can talk about this since you're yeah, yeah. a professional psychologist. So there is this thing, and actually, let me check how it is called. Um, neuroassociative conditioning. And do, mm -hmm. do you know what it is? So um, how I understood it uh, from the book, but I mean, Robbins is not a psychologist, so I, I don't, I don't say that I don't believe him, but I want like the real proof. And so what he says is that um, our nervous system is um, composed by nerve cells, right? By well, yeah, neurons. And so you have neural paths which uh, transport messages, which then create your reality, which was what we were talking about. So is this really how it works? So um, do all, does all your nervous system um, conduct the messages that you send into your brain and then you, well, the things that you tell to yourself and what we have just talked about? Yes, uh, in, in a word, yes. So any thought, um, any thought or memory or anything that we have is purely activity of neurons. So, so to, simple answers to that question is yes. Um, I think where he's coming from as well is, is about that story that we tell ourselves. So um, I think he's quite famous for things like the Superman pose, isn't he? You know, get up every day and do the Superman pose. And, yeah. um, and actually, funnily enough, to, to kind of relate what I was just talking about with that as well, even doing things like that increases serotonin levels over a period of time. And that's what he's referring to in terms of that, um, how did you put it, uh, neuroassociative conditioning. Um, so yeah, it's that kind of whatever story I keep reaffirming to myself is what I will eventually believe. And you, and you see that all the time if you look at things like um, Carol Dweck's work on fixed and growth mindsets, adopting growth mindsets, almost it kind of, it swells and grows into other aspects of your life. So you can take on a growth mindset all the time. So, so yeah, there, there's definitely some truth to that. You could all, you could almost say as well that those neural pathways, if they are um, conditioned in that way, shape or form, if you look at the likes of Daniel Coyle in his book, um, the name's going to escape me, it's on my shelf somewhere, uh, The Talent Code. Um, he talks a lot about the uh, myelin that gets laid down around your neurons to, to strengthen, the, 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 strengthen the signal, strengthen the output. So I guess in that respect, if you're telling yourself a certain story, those neural pathways are going to be used more, therefore coated in myelin more and strengthened. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Now I get it. <laughs> it's like putting um, insulation around uh, around the pipe so that it doesn't lose heat. It might think of it that way, or kind of laying down. If you take dial-up internet from years ago, becoming broadband, becoming whatever it is now. I'm trying to think of the the term that they use for for internet uh, cabling now, but it's you're laying down the stronger wires that send stronger signals. Yes, and it does make sense. And if you want to well, change how you perceive things, I guess you should um, use in a certain way uh, other neural pathways, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the benefits of, of, I guess, laying down new neural circuits, uh, I think we're just at the infancy, really, from a 
from a biological perspective, from a neurobiological perspective, things like combating Alzheimer's and those sorts of diseases, it's almost like a, well, if you keep learning new things, you keep learning, you keep laying down new neural pathways and those neural pathways are kind of more robust to things like disease and um, I guess you might want to use some atrophy or, or wastage. Um, and then, sorry, what did you, uh, I've kind of lost the train of, lost my train of thought here. Um, sorry, what was your question again? Terrible. Yeah. Um, so the point here was that um, with, well, if you change the neural pathways you use, like if you use, I mean, this is how I perceive it, but if you use the neural pathways, which conducts an idea of mediocrity, um, you can change to a neural pathway, which uh, conducts an idea of greatness and that way uh, it strengthens and then your reality mentally should start to change. Yeah, that I guess it's... Points. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, from a Tony Robbins perspective, it might be more akin to something like diverting traffic. So diverting traffic down roads you want them to go down rather than roads that they are currently going down. I think that might be a, a nice way of a nice way of looking at it. So, um, you know, send them down the nice road rather than the depressing road. That's, that's yeah. probably, probably what we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And well, we have been talking about psychology a lot and I actually like science and psychology especially. And could you suggest me some books on psychology, but also other books you use to create your book? Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, so some books on psychology, I think it's, it's a tricky one because I, I think it depends on someone's level of intent. So, I mean, you could go to psychological textbooks, for example, and you'll get all of the, all of the information to do with most of the history and theory, uh, history uh, of different theories and different models to kind of general psychology, which are perfectly, perfectly fine to do and perfectly advisable to do. I think if someone's not trying to read psychology from a, a purely academic perspective and they want something that's a little bit more applicable, I think people like Jordan Peterson, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to look past someone like him in terms of practical psychology. Uh, and I've learned a lot from from Jordan Peterson's work and uh, hopefully that's reflected in in the first couple of chapters of, of my book as well um yeah so his 12 rules for life uh is is a is a great book he's got another one coming out soon I believe um maps of meaning which is his first book is is not exactly the most palatable for people it's a very very heavy uh, heavy text so i'd probably say 12 rules for life over maps of meaning um i think outside of that i'm trying to i'm thinking looking at my, my bookshelf again um as to, as to who might be an appropriate again i think people educational psychology i think is is extremely important so again i would recommend carol dweck's book so as i as you might call an educational psychologist i think these things become directly applicable to people's lives as opposed to just being um just being a an academic journey so I, I would probably say those two would be the the best recommendation i would give to just pick up and get something get some value from it straight away would be those two all right and well uh 
about uh, philosophy books? Which are your favorite books? Uh, my my absolute favorite is actually uh, the, the Tao Te Ching, which is the uh, by Lao Tzu, the um, Taoist philosopher. That was probably a that was a game changer for me. Um, I read The Art of War by Sun Tzu first. This is a long, long time ago, but um, the Tao Te Ching put put a lot of things in perspective, and it, I was able to get what, what I got from that was balance. I think that was the the biggest overarching message is about balance, um, and then it's hard to look past the the Western, uh, the Greek scholars of Aristotle and um, Socrates, Plato, um, Marcus Aurelius, those sort of, sort of going into the Stoic era uh, fantastic um Nietzsche Nietzsche as well I think it's again it's hard to look past it's extremely difficult read so I, I wouldn't suggest that if you if you're new to philosophy I wouldn't dive straight in at, at, at Friedrich Nietzsche um the convoluted sentences alone much like Immanuel Kant so if anyone goes wants to explore kind of the middle European enlightenment philosophy period. Uh, there, there are two authors there that I would say, wait before you, before you pick up their, their texts. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd say, I'd say Marcus Aurelius is probably your middle ground for, for anyone that's looking to kind of get into Western philosophy as well. Cool. <laughs> I mean, meditation is a fantastic book. Yes, I, I, think it should be, I think it should be, um, obligatory essential reading for, for every human being it is because he was most powerful man in the world so i mean it's yeah. also uh knowledge of power right and well i just have two more questions before wrapping hmm. up the interview and the first one is what have you learned recently or discovered or applied whether it is related to the book or not it, it can be on any area of life very good question <laughs> I don't think I was prepared for this level of uh, this level of question. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is try is, is taking my own advice. So I, I I feel like I'm constantly in this battle, which in some respects is the, the biggest battle I have or the biggest challenge I have is is overthinking. So when you're someone like myself that likes these texts, likes these literature. Um, these fantastic ideas and deep thinking concepts. My problem is turning my brain off. So I guess the biggest challenge I have is, is being mindful in the rest of my life. So it's remembering that uh, when I'm brushing my teeth at night, I'm brushing my teeth. I'm not brushing my teeth and thinking about, or when I'm sitting and eating dinner, I'm not sitting, sitting and eating dinner whilst reading a book and thinking about what I need to write about in that chapter. I have to remind myself to separate and be mindful. When we're having this conversation, the only thing that should exist in the world to me is this conversation. So that's probably the biggest thing. You know, when, when, when times get stressful, it's remembering to be mindful. What am I doing right now? And that should be all I'm doing right now. Yeah, that definitely happens to me too. <laughs> Every time. It happens and, to everyone. It happens to everyone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and well, just last question. Would you like to add anything to the audience or to me or just to add anything? Uh, well, firstly, a, a huge thank you. And if, if there are 
whoever gets to see this, it'd be, it'd be great if they do pick up a copy of my book, or even if it's a case of they know someone that gets a copy and they, and they go to share it. Uh, ultimately, it's, what's more important for me is trying to share some of the things that I've learned through the, from my own personal journey and through these fantastic, incredible uh, authors, philosophers, psychologists. So, um, so yeah, if you can get your hands on a copy, fantastic. I would love to hear what people think as well, whether it's good, bad or indifferent feedback, I, I really don't mind at all. Uh, part of the learning process for me is, is taking in as much as I can from people. So if anyone gets the opportunity and feels like they want to send me a message, um, an email, there are details in the back of the book. Uh, they can get some details off of my Instagram channel and various other social media outlets. So I'd love to hear from people. Great. And well, thanks again for the interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, you too. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, uh, and wise beyond your years. Uh. <laughs> thanks. And well, again, thanks for the um, well for your teaching on the Tony Robbins book because uh, that really makes me be confused, and I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's part of the deal, isn't it? It's um, every 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 pursuit, every journey we have has got a learning curve. So we, we just need to, I think one of the key bits, and maybe one of the other things from the chapters to look at when it comes to learning is that. You know, why, why would you understand these things straight away? You know, everyone needs to start from somewhere. And as long as you take the right approach to learning, which is I'll be able to do it. It will just take a little bit of time. You'll, you'll, you'll be able to master anything you want to master. Yes. Indeed, it's being mindful, right? And the process. Yeah. Indeed, absolutely. Process, process, process over, over outcomes. Hey, so thanks for listening to the interview. I hope you received value, you learned, and that you enjoyed it. If you did, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram as The Reader Lounge or TheReaderLounge.podcast. And also, I would encourage you to share this episode to anyone who you think this podcast might be useful for. So again, thanks for listening to the interview and see you next time. Peace.